0: real conversations and some hard truths, gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs, and guns, guns. giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught, protect, and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hi everyone, and welcome back for another episode in our series about China. Ethan Rome is with you, as well as our co-host for this series, Calvin Krusty senior partner and consultant with the Critical Risk Team. So I'm just going to say welcome, Calvin. And we are continuing our discussion with experts on issues such as the Chinese Communist Party, foreign influence, espionage, and geopolitics. Because of the growing influence on our nation, both from outside actors and within, in this ever-expanding arena of geopolitics, Calvin and I have put together this series of podcasts on these issues and more. And uh, for just to make a clear distinction here at the start of the show, um, just want to clarify that when talking about China, we are talking about the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, and their various arms of influence and coercion. This is distinct from the good people of China, the majority of whom are good global citizens and have contributed to the advancement and prosperity of Canada. And on that, our guest today is Jonathan Manthorpe, John is a career journalist with over 50 years of experience. He was a foreign correspondent in Asia, Africa, and Europe for Southam News, the uh, European Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, and the national reporter for the Globe and Mail. He's authored three books on international relations, politics, and history. His book, Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation in Canada, was a national bestseller and one of the Globe and Mail's top 100 books of 2019. So, welcome, John.
1: Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here. And uh, I'm glad you're addressing what is a, a very important uh, topic, and especially for your members, who so you must deal with it on the front line.
0: Yeah, and you know what? We've got a bunch of people lined up. I think we're going to cover quite the range of topics. I do want to say, to start, though, uh, probably the best name for a book I've ever heard, claws of the panda the uh, uh contrasting image that i get in my head of an angry panda it just it seems kind of funny so i just wanted to point that out but um and we have calvin here to also kind of jump in and provide some uh expert opinions and uh points of view
2: so i'm looking uh, forward to it and uh, I, I i guess uh, just want to say thanks jonathan at the front end for uh joining us and uh, i think we're kind of uh keen and interested in terms of hearing uh from uh you in terms of uh your historic perspective strategic perspective and then kind of uh how that applies now i think uh most listeners uh uh, probably don't want to hear too much from me but uh with your uh, vast uh depth of experience over uh, multiple decades there I, i guess maybe we'll just turn it over from you going what do you think is some of the most important issues uh currently in terms of understanding this current uh, threat and issue facing uh, Canadians,
1: yeah. Well, thank you, Carmen. Let me just say, just picking up on what Nathan said about the title, that it sort of came to me because the for since really 1949, and certainly since the 1970s, the Chinese Communist Party has sort of lent, lent pandas to various countries around the world. As a sort of mainstay of their charm offensive, and a mainstay of the um, effort to convince other countries in the world that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is no threat, uh, that that it's uh, a really ch- a cuddly, charming little animal, um, and uh, we should all squeal with delight. So, um, I the title came to me really as a reminder that pandas do have claws, uh, and uh, and this panda in particular has very sharp claws. Um, in in terms of the situation we're in at the minute, um, well, there are two things. Obviously, there's the international situation and China's growing importance as a, a strategic and uh, a political and uh, uh, economic um, competitor on the world stage. Um, but you know, I've focused uh, in the book and in a lot of the presentations I've given since it. Um, was published on the situation here in Canada, because that's principally what the book was around. Um, And what uh, I think one of the the key important message uh, which Nathan alluded to in his introduction was that when I started giving um, presentations uh, in uh, 2019, and particularly when I had audiences where there was a substantial number of Canadians of Chinese heritage, uh, in in uh, there, I repeatedly, 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 right across the country, um, um, people said to me, "Look, Jonathan, when you're travelling around, when you're talking to uh, people, would you try to get mainstream Canada to understand the daily threat that we are under from agents of the Chinese Communist Party?" Um, and I've tried to do that. I mean, I've tried to um, try to uh, pay that debt. Um, and, and it is absolutely true. I mean, we've just seen recently stories about the Chinese Communist Party trying to, and well, having done so, set up, quote, police stations, secret police stations um, across the country, particularly at the moment in uh, Toronto and Vancouver. But they've been doing this around the world. They've done it in 50 countries around the world. Um, now, you know, that must be of particular interest for your members. But um, what it, it shows several things. I think uh, and the major one for me is that the Chinese Communist Party is determined, determined to uh, ensure that people in the ethnic Chinese diaspora, however many generations it is since they left their, their forefathers left China, that they are still under the watchful eye of the Chinese Communist Party. There is absolutely no justification whatsoever for these secret police stations. You know, the, the consulate and the embassy have said, Oh, they're there so that people can renew their driving licenses and things like that. Well, you can go to the concert or the embassy, or use the mail to renew your, your Chinese driver's license. This is nonsense. These are outposts, espionage outposts in the community to intimidate people. Um, I mean, that's that's the major news of the moment and story of the moment. But there are many others which I can go into if you'd like to. Uh,
0: yeah, it will. I think. Uh we'll get to even more in depth on those. If you can kind of start us though with a little bit on yourself and how you ended up in this world, because I mean, you've covered almost the entire globe, um, doing journalism. So, uh, kind of what's your drive or what's your motive to get involved with the, uh, China narrative. And then, um, based on your career, we'll kind of get into, you know, what you're seeing now.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, I've I've been a journalist since 1965. Um, I joined the Globe and Mail in 1969, and I was made a political reporter at Queen's Park in 1970. And it was actually there that I first came across the beginnings of this story. Um, That 1970 was, of course, was when Canada established diplomatic relations with China. Um, But I came across uh, a gentleman, uh, a professor uh, called Paul Lin was a Canadian born of Chinese heritage um, but he had gone to uh, China in 1949 uh, when the Communists took over and he'd stayed there for uh, uh, all over 13 14 years and he'd come back really very much as uh, in order to uh, enhance Canada um, China relations with the People's Republic of China with the Communist Party and he was instrumental in setting up not only um, uh, uh, um, China-based faculties in Canadian universities, um, particularly UBC and McGill, where he worked. He was instrumental in setting up uh, the Canada-China Business Council, which has been one of the most effective um, uh, instruments of influence uh, by the Chinese Communist Party in in Canada. And he was instrumental also in promoting... um, the diplomatic recognition of, uh, of uh, the People's Republic of China by Canada. So I had that at the back of my mind. I, I was a political reporter for the Globe for many years, then a columnist for the Star. I became a foreign correspondent in 1979, first in Europe, then in Africa. And then uh, in 1993, I moved to Hong Kong uh, for Southern News. And it was, uh, this of course, was just fairly shortly after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And um, the Chinese Communist Party was beginning to try to overcome uh, the sanctions. And, of course, one of the first countries to uh, respond was Canada. Uh, the government of Jean Chrétien started the uh, uh, Team Canada trade trips to um, to China. And I reported on these, and um, it became clear to me that um, the... I could I could see how uh, profound the uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, uh, influence was, particularly amongst the Canadian business community, um, and that was really one of the first links that uh, that I, I established. And then also, when I started traveling around China, and I traveled widely all, all over the country, I um, I picked up stories about uh, um, the Canadian missionaries there in the um, 1930s and 40s, um, and the importance uh, of their position uh, in uh, the growing, or in developing a relationship between Canada and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, There've been a couple of books about that, which I I then read carefully, uh, and that that revealed the importance that, um, that those figures who had been missionaries or had been diplomats in the, in China in the 1940s in particular, had played in the development of Canadian foreign policy after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So I was beginning to see some strands. Um, and uh, another, of course, living in Hong Kong, was that uh, Hong Kong in many ways is a very Canadian city. At any one time, there were, at that time, over 300,000 Canadians uh, living there, either um, either. Uh, um, Uh, people of Hong Kong heritage who had uh, come to Canada and uh, got citizenship and gone back to work, or um, people of non-Chinese heritage. Um, Canada was the largest minority in Hong Kong and had a very strong historic link to Hong Kong through the defence of the territory in the the winter of 1941. So there again were links. There was also, at that time, there there were problems about... um, uh, um, uh, corruption in the Canadian immigration uh, um, service. There, so um, uh, th- there were a, a load of stories which, which to follow, and which which created a chain of of links. Um, but it really wasn't um, until I came back to uh, Canada in, in uh, 1998 that uh, and saw what was happening at this end that I began to put the whole thing together. Um, and when I came to write it. I was very concerned on two fronts, um, one, that it would be taken as conspiracy theory. Um, and I am not a conspiracy theorist but on, on anything. I've never seen a conspiracy that worked very well, um, and I've seen a lot of attempts at it. The other was that I would be accused of racism. Um, and so when I wrote the well I went to several friends of mine of Chinese heritage and said, "Look, you know, this is my problem. What should I do?" And they all said, "Look, Jonathan, you've got to find a way of writing stories too important for us, for Canadians generally, not to leave on the shelf." And so I decided to um, uh, set all rhetoric aside and write the simple story of what was on the public record. And pretty well everything in that book is on the public record.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So there are about maybe half a half a dozen instances where I haven't named the sources because. They were private to me, and uh, I can't, uh, for one reason or another, don't want to uh, identify them. But there's half a dozen at the most. Pretty well everything in that book is on the public record and comes from the public record. Uh, so, you know, I've had no uh, reaction from the Chinese Communist Party. I've had no one try to uh, say the book is, is, is a conspiracy theory nonsense. In fact, you know, quite the reverse. I mean, I think we've seen. In the last few months, we've seen uh, the, the federal government, for example, shift its uh, its policy towards Asia in very much the directions that I argued in the book that it should. That it's, it's broadened its perspective to uh, to put far more emphasis on developing and maintaining relations with countries in Asia with whom we share values. Mm-hmm. Now, that I, I can't claim full authorship for that because, of course. Uh, uh, around the time the book was published, we had the start of the Huawei affair um, and the uh, detention in Vancouver of Meng Wangzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei Technologies, on a warrant issued by the US Department of Justice. And the me- immediate reaction of the Communist Party was to take hostages. Um, and I think that that said to most Canadians, and including a lot of the politicians and business leaders who had been. Defending the relationship with Beijing, you cannot have a regular, normal relationship with a country whose first instinct, when there is a problem, is to take hostages. You can't do it. You, you're not on the same playing field. You're not playing the same game. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, as much as my book has had a profound more of a profound impact on business leaders uh, and on. Um, uh, political leaders and on academics because you know, at the moment, every Canadian who goes to China be a, a business leader or a politician or whatever, is a potential hostage. Uh, and I think that that message has finally got home that we are not dealing with a friendly government.
0: Well, and actually so that Mr. Uh, Mr. Lin, the mm. guy from your book, mm. one of the things I found interesting about him as well as several other people in there is there's warnings from intelligence community and police services saying, this guy might be playing both sides or we're sure he's playing both sides. Um, Yet people, for whatever reason, uh, to one degree or another, seem to ignore that. So whether that's the politicians or the Canadian elites, um, they seem to ignore that. So what was the reasoning kind of even around that time, but maybe it's still the same today? Why are they ignoring this stuff? Are they just...
1: Well, I think you know it, 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 they had been suborned one way or another. The business people. I mean, if you look at the initial membership, the founding membership of the uh, Canada-China Business Council, it's all the top banks. It's it's the you know the elite of our business community, and they were given initially good, nice deals in China. They were given lost leader deals, um, and it has paid off politically. And so, you, I mean, you have organizations. The, pro, the prime one would be the power corporation in Montreal, um, which you know, has ac- acute political connections. Mm-hmm. You know, not only was the, the head until very recently the son-in-law of Jean Chrétien, you know, Trudeau has worked for Pierre Trudeau has worked for them, Paul Martin worked for them, uh, Brian Mulroney worked for them. You know, the political links of the power corporation are, are as good as you get in this country um so there's that but um but just on your your point just to go back to your original point on that the you're quite right uh, our security establishments gave multiple warnings um the first one i could find the first serious one was a paper published by the csis the canadian security intelligence service uh shortly after the handover of hong kong in 1997 um and um, it, it was a paper, uh, and they do publish papers now and again, obviously not containing uh, secret information, but um, but, uh, uh, but for information of the public and of academics. This one was about the United Front Work Department, which, to put it blankly, boldly, uh, is the Chinese Communist Party's political warfare organization. It's, it's that simple. Um, this is a, a massive organization which has grown under uh, since Xi Jinping became leader. There are now United Front operatives in all their embassies, all their uh, um, consulates, all their companies. Every every uh, uh, Chinese company has cells uh, of from the United Front, uh, and their uh, the job of the United Front is to. Um, Get the friendship and the aid and help of people who are suspicious of communists. The the United Front's uh, whole um, aim is to create links with non communist organizations. And and it was founded in the 1940s just for that purpose, and it carries on. And it's now even more massive than than it has been for some years. Um, So uh, this uh, ceases paper. Uh, set out what the role that United Front had played in Hong Kong before the handover, and how it had been used to get very many Hong Kongers who were at either not supporters of, of the communists or um, uh, or who were uh, politically apathetic to welcome the change of sovereignty, to welcome the arrival of the Chinese Communist Party as the, the ultimate sovereign. Uh, and the paper went on to describe what was likely to happen in Canada, it was very likely that the United Front would be turned on Canada now because of the large number of um, people of Chinese heritage living in Canada—about one and a half million, something like that—and um, it was a it was a very firm warning. So there was that. You know, I think the paper came out in. Uh, Paper came out in
3: 1998,
2: I think. Um, John, Jonathan, is sorry to interrupt. I'll, I'll continue. Is is that uh, Project Sidewinder paper? Is that the one you're? No, no, no. I was just coming to that. That's the next. Okay, time. okay. Sorry, uh, clarifying.
1: Ceases. took this. You know, this. Uh, this uh, uh, that, that was a public document, but clearly Ceases was looking very seriously uh, at the threat now from um, from the United Front and from the Chinese Communist Party, and this led to uh, a small working group being set up, I think, in in 2000, uh, uh, which um, uh, produced a paper which was codenamed Side One. Um, And this, again, set out in great detail the level of infiltration into Canadian business, uh, uh, some politics, and um, uh, academia. Of, uh, of Chinese Communist Party organisations, um, and said essentially, look, you know, we have a real problem and we need to address it. Now, this um, this report got sidelined. Um, CSIS, as you will all know, was founded in the in the mid nineteen eighties and was a, an amalgamation of the old Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Secret Service, and then. People were brought in from academia and, I guess, from military intelligence, things like that. And, uh, you know, five years later or so, it was not yet a cohesive organization. Um, and there were still sort of frictions between the various elements that had made up this new um, uh, uh, intelligence service. And so uh, the, there, were, there were arguments for and against this paper within the service. Uh, And uh, that led to it being uh, leaked. I've got a copy here. It's it's easy to find. Uh, There there are some problems with the the paper. Um, Some of the logic uh, is a a little iffy. Um, It was originally written in French, and in some places the the English translation is not very good. Um, So there was that. But by and large, everything that the paper says stands up. You know, we're looking at it now over twenty years later. it stands up. Um, but uh, it was referred to the security Intelligence review committee, um, made up largely of politicians, several of whom had uh, had their own relationships with China. Mm. Um, and uh, the uh, this the, the review committee, Sideline the report he said that there, there was a, that it was a flawed report and there was no need to take any action on it um I went into some depth in this story in the in the book because it's important um, and it's a very clear example of how over the years politicians have done a great deal to um and not just politicians um uh, 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 um, 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 um the business community in particular and academia as well, have, have done a great deal to try to deflect any attention from, from problems with the relationship with the Chinese Communist Party or the People's Republic of China. And this was a very, very good example. There are others I mentioned a few minutes ago, problems with immigration in from Hong Kong. There again, there was a whole, uh, um, a couple of Mounties did a very, very thorough um, analysis of of what was going on and problems with with uh, the uh, the investor immigrant uh, program that was introduced by the Marooni government in the nineteen eighties, which is an illustration that this is this is not you know one party that's a problem here. It's the political classes as a whole who have been um, suborned to a degree.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that report also was buried. and there's been a consistent. Um, um, Consistent attempts to deflect attention from what was, was very obvious. Um, you know, Another example, um, which again comes back to the, the problems that uh, Canadians of Chinese heritage have in their daily lives, um, all Chinese language media now in Canada, except with maybe one or two exceptions, all Chinese language media in Canada is under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Either directly or through people, uh, uh, publishers, proprietors uh, who also have business dealings in China and are therefore susceptible to pressure. Um, that, that's just one example. Another is that most of the old, um, you know, cooperative organizations that um, Chinese Canadians put together uh, when they arrived here uh, to. Uh, um, look after themselves. You know, name groups, people from the, uh, the same village or town would get together in mutual support organizations, and the, like many of these organizations have survived. Um, most of those now have been taken over, had their leadership taken over by United Front operatives. Then, then there's the activities in Canadian universities and colleges for quite a while here. We had what were called Confucius Institutes. These were um, Chinese language and cultural centres uh, in Canadian colleges and universities that were paid for ostensibly by the um, uh, uh, Chinese Department of Education. In fact, they are United Front operations, and if you look at the the um, uh, the, uh, the structure, the government structure in in China, it's, they come out clearly as under the united front so they're therefore political operation um in fact csis went around a, a couple of years ago a bit more probably 3 years ago to the colleges the universities that still had these confucius institutes and said look these are essentially espionage outposts which is what they were they were there for two major reasons one was to control the um chinese foreign students in those ca- Canadian colleges and universities and make sure they didn't get involved in any political activity um, that the Communist Party uh, dis- uh, disapproves of. But the other was, of course, to look for uh, useful uh, technology that was being researched in the Canadian mm-hmm. university. Uh, they were very successful at that. I mean, there, there are lots of examples of... Um, uh, China pouncing on uh, useful-looking technology, particularly military technology, um, financing it, and then when it's uh, done, the uh, the Canadian uh, researchers finding that they have no uh, patents on on what they've discovered. That uh,
0: the research, got from. lots of examples. You want to go ahead there, Calvin?
2: Yeah, I I have a uh, a question that I'm uh, very curious to uh, ask. Uh, like listening to your description in terms of the historical analysis, the reports that came out, and obviously some of our listeners are you know from the uh, security intelligence uh, entities. But as you're monitoring uh, <clears throat> the evolution of this issue and threat within uh, Canada uh, going back to at least the early 90s, you were alluding to governments um, possibly playing a role in terms of deflecting, um, say, the authorities, looking at it, dealing with it, and mitigating the threat. I'd be interested in hearing from you in terms of uh, your perspective and your analysis, how significant of that interference, um, for lack of a better term, uh, do you think that played over the last several decades to where we are today, where... You know it sounds with current media results we're seeing mining companies we're seeing insider threats we're seeing them in critical infrastructure as spies. How big of a role do you think government played and and leaders within government to dissuade security and intelligence entities from quote unquote doing the right thing
1: well that, that that's a key and important question government and, and it's uh, um, i say and, it, and it, Um, It takes some subtlety to to answer it. I'll I'll do the best I can and be as as, as forthright as I can. From all the politicians I've talked to and uh, and watched on this essential question, I think they made a a judgment that the benefits of doing business with China outweighed that threat. Um, I think that they were wrong. And I think that many people, particularly in the Canadian Chinese communities, would say that they were wrong. And I think probably there are many, many other people who would say they were wrong. But which is why I I think throughout the book um, uh, refer to uh, what, to me, appears to be self-delusion amongst our establishment classes, if I put it that way, amongst the, the the business, the academic, and the political elites about the true nature of the relationship with China, this abiding sense of belief amongst Canadian leaders that um, that we had a special relationship, a special friendship with the Chinese Communist Party. We didn't. And again, just going back, the the importance of the Huawei affair was that it showed that we had no special relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. It showed that they were more concerned about the fate of one uh, red princess and they were about the entire relationship with Canada. So, yes, your question is, is absolutely vital. Um, and I think that it was, it was, in most cases, it was self-delusion and the belief that the benefits of the relationship were greater than the threats that was behind this. Although now I think we see that that, that was not true. That the the dangers of the of the relationship and the way the relationship would be handled were very, very real. And we're now beginning to see the the outcome of that. You know, allegations that in the last election the Chinese Communist Party um was instrumental in, in financing um candidates in, in eleven in eleven constituents.
2: I I asked the question uh, because I think uh having been a serving police officer for several decades and working closely with the uh intelligence and security community uh, within canada and abroad i think for for most of us uh i just couldn't fathom that actually occurring however as i got uh more gray hairs and more experience i started seeing more and more indicators of that influence and even to myself recall not that long ago being told and advised uh hey uh, in my former career, to collaborate, cooperate, mm-hmm. and share intel, mm-hmm. to which I had mm-hmm. a very uh, high degree of skepticism and uh, reluctance on it. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I, I think it's just an important point to make, and I, that's why I asked you to expand on it, mm-hmm. particularly for um, you know the folks in security and intel that mm-hmm. are listening to podcasts. Over to you, Nathan. I think you had a question.
1: Yeah. Let me let me just add a quick.
2: Yeah. No. Go ahead.
1: As as an ordinary citizen, I would say, though, of course, in our you know our balance of accountabilities in a democracy, we don't necessarily want uh, our intelligence services dictating policy. But uh, you know, there needs to be political oversight, but there needs to be informed and thoughtful and uh, uh, and not self delusional political oversight.
2: Very mm-hmm. very
0: Yeah, and um, one thing I was kind of wondering was. Over your experience of uh, being involved in this world, do you see a general distrust between the politicians here in Canada and those security services or the police?
1: I have seen that. Yes, um, uh, I I have seen that. Uh, I think that's beginning to change. I think that's um, the uh, one of the good things that has happened over the last few years, and and it I think it's in part been spurred by the Huawei. Is that CSIS, for example, has become much more concerned about um, uh, talking in public about threats that it sees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a fairly recent uh, development. And I think it's important. I mean, I don't see any reason why a, a security service like CSIS should not be able to talk. Um, you know, within certain bounds, about certain threats that it's seen, and it has is issued uh, threat uh, warnings in advance of elections, for example. Um, I think this is a good development, and they've they've, they've got an organisation. They call it academic outreach, mm. but it's basically their PR department, um, and uh, they've they've been um, uh, they've, they've been much more open um, and and willing to discuss and present uh their uh, qualms and warnings and so forth and they have been which is a, I, th- I think a very good thing mm-hmm. um and it removes a, a lot of the the uh, um uh, hopefully it move, removes some of the mistrust from politicians but hopefully it it makes uh, it, it, it uh creates a bond with the, with the ordinary canadian citizens who feel that they do have somebody up there you know watching out for uh, for uh, threats
2: mm-hmm. I, I i couldn't agree uh more with you and i I'm going to take a uh, an opportunity here for the first time ever to uh, compliment Nathan who's uh, taken this uh, topic on you know, with his profession and within his profession of security to do it. Because I think it's so, so important when you look at our international partners, whether it be the FBI and others, they have a much more robust um, interface uh, with the community on uh, security, intelligence, national security issues. Mm-hmm. and i think um that's kind of been the intent of uh nathan here going uh, forward so i'm going to pat him uh give him a virtual pat on the back here uh over uh, uh the call today and we'll
0: wrap it there that's the end of the podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no i would agree with that i
1: think you know as much as is possible we need to talk about these things and we need to be able to develop realistic responses to them um you know, our, our relationship with the prc would not have come to a crisis if there had been more realistic view of that relationship, uh, and and we're paying the price for that. Now, you know? I, I, you know, I'm I'm a pacifist by nature, but I've learned as a young boy um, that uh, to be a pacifist, you've got to be very tough, mm-hmm. and you've got to be very tough-minded, and you've got to make very strong judgments about what you will accept and what you won't. Um, and I you know I've, I've heard. People just recently say, well, you know, China is so important to us, we have to we have to be careful how we respond. Well, actually, China is not that important to us, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the trade numbers. Um, but, I mean, more important than that, if we're a sovereign country, we have the, the right and the duty to set out very clearly how we expect people to behave in this country, and setting up secret police stations is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh They tried this before, in fact, a few years ago, and I think I mentioned it in the book, but a few years before, they wanted to station uh, policemen in Vancouver, I think, but uh, mostly in BC, um, to protect uh, Chinese tourists against Canadians. Now, you know, I mean, what the heck were they thinking? How did they imagine that we would at all think that that would be an acceptable thing? But it shows the state of mind that, um, you know, their, the, the Chinese Communist Party feels it has the right to control the lives, observe the lives of people of Chinese heritage wherever and whenever they are.
0: Well, I think this is, um, and uh, I was gonna say, I think this is part of the disinformation campaign. And maybe Calvin wants to jump in here too, with when we talk about, um, you know, if you start saying things about the CCP or uh, Chinese people in general. All of a sudden, the information out there starts being there's a whole lot of anti-Chinese uh, rhetoric, and it's not necessarily true. So we have to be careful of the disinformation campaigns as well.
1: No, absolutely. But And they were you know, the Chinese Communist Party and the United, using the United Front will play on this, um, uh, and they do consistently. They, they haven't tried it with me, thank heavens, but but I was all prepared for them to do it. Um, but uh, but they will. I mean, they will will do it amongst Chinese or ethnic Chinese people too. Um, You know, they will try to tell um, Canadians of Chinese heritage uh, that the rest of the country is against them. Um, Where we have a a problem at the moment, of course, is that most of our immigrants coming (coughs) of Chinese heritage are coming from the mainland, and they don't have the same experience of our institutions and how they work, as do the people who came from Hong Kong, who came from a very similar administrative heritage, so that they understood how Canada works. And the people coming from, and, and of course, many of the people coming, most of people coming from Hong Kong also spoke English. Um, the people from the mainland are very much the prisoners of Chinese language media. Um, and I was asked, um, uh, by one of our security establishments after the book was published if um, I was going to have a Chinese edition. Um, and I was told that, uh, that it, was, it was thought that would be a good idea because so many of the recent immigrants uh, from mainland China to Canada didn't speak in, or much English or many of the members of the families did, uh, and that they were still prey to uh, Chinese language media mostly controlled by the CCP, um, and uh, it was suggested that it would be a good thing if uh, if my book was published in Chinese. We did publish it in Chinese, although, um, as you can imagine, we've had difficulties distributing, it. but there we are. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it is available in Chinese. It's actually available in, in Korean as well, and it should be available soon in Japanese, so... Um, those Korea and Japan in particular are are, uh, are very interested in what's happening here because they also are under slightly different uh, threats from uh, from the CCP but, but uh, in so, certainly in some cases, particularly United Front operations are very similar. And of course you know, as, as I'm sure you know the the, uh, the campaign of intimidation and infiltration in Australia has been a carbon copy of what uh, what they've done here. We were were really the test run for for the United Front operations in Australia, New Zealand, uh, United States, and many other places. Um, The the operation is the same all around the world, wherever there is a substantial uh, uh, Chinese diaspora population or, uh, or, 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 or otherwise.
0: And Calvin,
2: go ahead there. Yeah, Jonathan, just a quick question. We've seen in Saskatchewan uh, recently um, foreign uh, influence operations attempting to counter uh, mining operations and mining expansion uh, operations just in the last couple months, where it appears the Chinese government is behind some of the social media campaigns to undermine the integrity of uh, Canadian business interests. in Western Canada, Mm. knowing that many of the uh, uh, listeners may be from uh, Alberta, Mm. kind of cascading those concerns and looking at it from a perspective of uh, energy, oil, gas Mm. uh, from uh, an Albertan perspective. Mm. Have you seen much? Do you have any thoughts on it? Concerns? Um, What's your, what's your thoughts?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I have I have many about it. This is a fascinating area. Um, I mean, I think one of the the the, uh, the the basic rules when one's dealing with particularly state-owned uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party companies is that there's very little in in it for the, the host countries. <laughs> um, uh, I was uh, I was up in uh, the Yukon recently, and there was a case where uh, a, a state-owned Chinese uh, um, tin company had, had taken over a nearly bankrupt uh, Canadian-owned tin company up in uh, in the Yukon. Um, they'd bled uh, it. they basically emptied it, um, then declared bankruptcy uh, and left the country and left the people of, of the Yukon holding a terrific bill. I mean, it doesn't sound much for us, but I think it's some twenty, thirty million dollars. But there are there are only forty five thousand people in the UK. A, a huge bill for reclamation of, of the land. Um, I don't I don't know of many countries who, in the end, have, have prospered or benefited from their dealings with uh, particularly Chinese state owned companies. Although now uh, now that there was a law passed a few years ago. Uh, Demanding that there be Chinese Communist Party cells in all, all private and public uh, Chinese companies, uh, and also in foreign companies operating in in China. So these are all directed and controlled by the party in the long run. Um, but I mean, so far as I, this is this is let me come at this from just sideways a bit. Um, uh, one of the i think the benefits of the the covid-19 pandemic was that it almost instantly showed us a lot of the weaknesses and the strengths of our political economic social cultural system i mean some things some areas of our lives blossomed and others we thought you know for example uh, se- selling uh, your uh, industry your uh, your your one Industrial outlet that manufactures viruses, selling it of uh, uh, vaccines, selling it to a foreign company didn't look so clever, did it? Uh, in uh, in the beginning of 2020, um, or you know, discovering you've lost the ability to uh, quickly produce um, PPP, uh, personal protective uh, gear, um, and I think that perhaps if we ever really get set uh, sit, sit down to think about what our national interests and our uh, national priorities and security priorities ought to be in this day and age, I think we we, we we ought to figure that we need to revise them and re-examine them. And one of them, I think, would be that while we have always relished being a, um, a free-trading society um, and open to um, foreign investment and so on and so forth, um i think that one of the the lessons from covid is that there needs to be some boundaries on our on our openness um that um that we uh there, there are some national interests which which we should hold to be untouchable and i would think that a uh, um uh, 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 some uh, restrictions on our on foreign investments in 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 uh, um in resources and in goods and services that we consider to be part of our national interests ought to be ought to be included in that now whether it include um uh, alberta's um uh, energy uh, fields i i i i'm not don't feel competent to say but i would have thought that that would ought to be one of the areas where the where uh, there should be some very serious discussions about what are our national interests and not just Alberta interests in, in this whole, uh, this whole uh, area. To a certain extent, that's happening. But um, I, I, uh, I, 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 I would really like to see uh, the beginnings of a national debate on, on what are our national uh, interests and our national security interests in, in, in this day and age I think they're a
0: bit outdated at the minute um, kind of on that too do, Have you ever seen or do you have an opinion on whether a certain per, or a particular political party is the, like the CCP might want to avoid them more, maybe one is not as friendly uh, policy wise or whether that comes to security implementing actual changes in security
1: yeah i my my experience. Uh, is that they don't differentiate much between our two major parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives. Um, uh, I know you will remember, of course. Um, well, you're too young, Nathan, but in the 1970s, of course, the NDP or branches of the NDP were the big party of of uh, of, uh, of uh, national uh, business, or business nationalism. They were they were there were factions in the uh, the NDP that were vehemently opposed to all foreign investment in Canada. Mm. Um, I don't think that would seem to be the case today. But uh, um, no, I don't. I, I don't think I, I get the feeling that they don't. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't really do, uh, differentiate. And it, it, actually, I mean, if you, um, even though ostensibly the Conservatives as the party of, of, of business in uh, uh, in Canada, I, I don't. That's not really true. Um, both our main political parties have um, uh, are very much um, a pro-business. And uh, insofar as we know uh, what uh, Chinese Communist Party has done in terms of trying to interfere in Canadian elections, uh, it, it seems to be. And I hesitate to be too uh, too definitive about this because we don't really know at the moment. It, it, it seems to be conservative t- candidates that they've attacked, mm-hmm. um, rather than uh, than others. But um, I, so I, I haven't seen any. Uh, as I said, you know, I think that uh, the Brahman Balrudi, I mean, he purposely he adopted Pierre Trudeau's attitude towards the Chinese Communist Party and and to the PRC and and uh, and continue. He wrote it. Wrote in his diary that he was going to follow Trudeau's policy on China, and he did. I mean, it was. Uh, um he was of course in in power in 1989 and canada had secret um uh, had secret talks with um the chinese uh, communist party in beijing very soon after tiananmen square when there were still meant to be um uh, serious uh sanctions in place and uh ban got got um, his ministers got talking with beijing very very quickly about uh, a renewing relations. Um, so, um, I, I, you know, historically, there's there's really very little difference between them. Um, Harper, of course, said that there there are more important things than the Almighty Dollar, and he started his uh, his period as Prime Minister with a publicly a, a fairly sceptical attitude towards the PRC but he came under a huge amount of pressure, particularly from the business community. Um, but also from academics as well and by the end of his term he he changed his attitude very uh, dramatically although there was of course he did um, he did uh, uh, his government did impose some limitations on uh, on energy exports didn't they and companies that could be uh, uh, that could be bought by foreign interests, and particularly chinese interests but uh, you know we, we uh, i for example i, I I would be very skeptical about selling um, uh, 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 mineral resources in uh, mines in the Arctic to to uh, Chinese companies at the moment because the Arctic is likely to become a very important shipping route in the next few years mm-hmm. um, uh, the, there have been Chinese companies that have already tried to get themselves established in Iceland which you know if it, the Northwest Passage or, the, or uh, the, uh, the North Pole route to Europe become feasible, I mean, Iceland is going to be a very, be a very important entrepot for distribution of goods around Europe from, from China. Um, but the uh, Icelanders have uh, kept them out. But I think that, um, uh, you know, particularly as we have disputed sovereignty, in Africa, particularly with the U.S., uh, over the Northwest Passage, I think it would be very foolish of us to let anybody in at the moment until it's quite clear that we can we can establish and firmly establish and defend our sovereignty in the Arctic which we can't at the moment um, I, um, I, thankfully that is a a focus for many people but I think it, uh, it uh, we need to we need to really establish and make sure the world knows that this is our our territory our neck of the woods and we are going to control what happens there um and uh, I, I don't think letting foreign any foreign company um get into mining operations uh, or which involves any sort of land tenure in uh, in the arctic uh, is a good idea until we've 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 firmly planted our flag there. i
0: well, i like those words those are fighting words <laughs> so um <laughs> Yeah, and you know what? It kind of makes me think of like some of the recent push from some of the provinces for more sovereignty from the federal government. And, I mean, if I I was the CCP, I'd be thinking I would rather have everybody under the the control of one government and then it's only one that I got to deal with. So I wondered, you know, when you see a lot of the media is kind of slanted one way, more so against conservatives, um, that maybe that's some sort of disinformation in there because there's a lot of stuff even just on policing in general when you read it and you're like that's not true like i i, I was there or i know you know i have yeah. friends who can tell me that that isn't the f- uh, fact mm-hmm. it's like well what's the source of this information and, and now you're getting my, my, my
1: latest
0: book yes published in 2020, <laughs> restoring democracy restoring democracy yes. <laughs> <laughs> i actually um, have that right here i don't know if i can see this well, it's, it's you know,
3: underlined
1: I, that's right the other there. Thing. Oh, good. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, I—that's the other thing. And I am just talking about the need to reassess national security and national interest. I, you know, the other another lesson from COVID is that, uh, and from other events of current life, what we need to uh, really sit down and uh, uh, and debate our our national political system and constitution. Um, I, I took a little time out from journalism in the in the 1980s. And I was part of a team in London, uh, reporting to the Prime Minister's Office, then Pierre Trudeau, uh, and advising him on patriation of the Constitution, dealing with the British Parliament and, the, and British uh, officials and and the, and the government of Margaret Thatcher. Um, and you know that was in, that was a, a critical moment in the history of Canada when we gained regained our, our constitution but you know it's now been sitting there for 40 years and we still can't amend the mm-hmm. the lovely document um, and there are there are a huge number of problems in this country that we can't deal with because we can't amend the Constitution because we, we, we have um, uh, and sometimes inoperable relationship between the provinces either individually or collectively and the federal government you know uh, again with the pandemic health is a provincial responsibility we had you know we had 10 different responses to it yeah. across the country um and you know, i mean policing could could easily be a, another area um i think you know we need we need a I remember John Robarts back in the nineteen sixties in Ontario. He, after the uh, the centennial, he 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 called a Confederation of Tomorrow conference, which you know went. It, it was quite academic, and of course, coming from a province, it it had limited. But Ontario was the province at that time. Um, it, it, it had limited uh, audience, but but um, there are there are so many things that that uh, are. Uh, are, um, uh, road uh, bumps in the road in Canada. I mean, for example, again, just the medical stuff, you know, doctors can't move from Ontario to BC or from one province to another without the say, so of these little provincial mafias, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that regulate who could be a doctor, who could be a dentist, who could be an accountant, all these things. Um, you know, we need free trade within Canada. We need to be able to amend the Constitution. When um, uh, Again, for example, you know the, the, the death of the Queen and the accession of Charles Third is brought up again. Do we want the British monarch as head of state? A perfectly legitimate question, except we can't do anything about it even if we want it because it's written into the Constitution and we can't amend the Constitution because we have no method of, of, of amending it. Other than unanimity, and you're never going to get unanimity mm-hmm. on, a, on a constitutional matter in, in, a, in a regional country like Canada. So, you know, we had a deal in the uh, in the Charlottetown uh, uh, Convention of what was it, 92? Uh, um, but then, foolishly and quite wrongly, in my view, um, several provinces um, put it uh, decided to put it to a referendum. And and people turned it down, uh, and so it failed. Now, you know, I'm a, a bit of a parliamentary purist, and I don't think that you, there's any role for referenda in in our system. That we elect members to go to parliament to make decisions, and if a, if politicians um, try to hold referenda, it, to me, it's a sign of cowardice that they don't dare make a decision themselves, mm-hmm. and and uh, and, uh, and and and. Uh, and sit with the outcome um so i I don't approve of referendum at all um but uh, you know we're, we're getting into the weeds there <laughs> about, about the stuff. but 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 i you know, we we are in my view we are we are, we are vulnerable because our parliamentary our system of, of 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 government and of politics is not wholly functional we can't respond very quickly to uh, Uh, troubles when they appear and um, we are in an age when troubles appear very fast
0: and that also that kind of leads to uh what i was gonna maybe wrap up with but it's Mm -hmm. the difference between leadership and management and um i i talk about this all the time especially when it comes to policing but Mm -hmm. when you're talking about parliament in particular and their dealings with the geopolitical world i guess Mm -hmm. nobody likes a fence sitter so You know, are we lacking those people nowadays that are willing to say, hey, here's my decision. Here's the reasons why this is what we're doing. And I'll answer for it if I have to. But you don't really get that. And actually on that point, too, I was reading the new Indo policy and I found it just to be a lot of fluff. (laughs) It's just like general nice to knows very big, overarching statements, but nothing concrete know like right. okay, we're going to do this, but this is how we're going to do it. It's just nice to know's generalized statements So,
1: I think I think that you know, um, um, amongst all my friends who are uh, uh, interested in the Indo-Pacific and uh, many of them so sort of former diplomats and so forth, they've got a lot of underground experience. Their reaction is exactly the same as yours. I'm in fact going to a little discussion group uh, here in Victoria next week. We're going to be going through it, but. Uh, but I think that you know, you've hit the general reaction right on the head. let's. But your point b- behind that too—that we don't live in an age um, where uh, politicians, in particular, at all, all levels, um, are willing to take responsibility for their for their decisions, and particularly when they make mistakes. Why this is, I don't know. But I mean, I when I started covering politics in the 1970s. Um, in Ontario, that was. Um, you know, there were ministers resigning very regularly when they got caught out doing something wrong. But it, it seems now that nobody takes responsibility for anything in politics. Yeah. It's quite astonishing the stuff that people get to uh, go, not only in, in Ottawa, but in all the provinces as well. Um, and uh, I've thought about this a great deal because I think it's a very serious problem. And I think one of the reasons why it's a problem is that it has shown how conclusively um, celebrity culture and, and the concept of politics as as entertainment has overtaken our political system. And it's not just here. I mean, obviously, it came originally from the States, but it's it's gone all through Europe as well. Um, and, you know, uh, like with, uh, you know, uh, movie stars, uh, politicians who make mistakes, they don't... Uh, they don't, um, they don't resign and go home. They just apologize and carry on. You know? um, and that's not good enough. That's not good enough. We need, uh, we need I think, to, to get back to some of the basics. And again, one of the, and I'll finish off here. One of the problems we have, and you in the police must come across this too, um, is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, mm-hmm. uh, that was part of the package from London that I was involved with. I disagreed with it at the time. I was a very lowly voice. I was sort of, uh, uh, I, I had no influence whatsoever in, uh, in what happened there. But I thought that it was a mistake to include the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in there because it it um, allowed Parliament to abrogate its responsibility on social issues. and it handed it to a court, an unaccountable court. Um, and I think that that was the beginning of uh, some of the slide away from Parliament taking responsibility for its actions, but also, of course, of public respect for Parliament. Uh, and uh, uh, there's very little public respect for, for our, our uh, legislatures of Parliament now. And part of that, of course, I, I think it's because of the, the Charter, um, which... I, I, you know, A a constitutional democracy and a parliamentary democracy are very different things, Mm -hmm. different cultures. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms introduces an alien constitutional democracy concept into a parliamentary system, and they don't fit. But there we are. That's another reason why we need to be able to amend the
0: constitution. That's the idea for the next book. Uh, Go ahead, Calvin. (laughs)
2: Well, I was just going to say, there's a there's a famous uh, saying, and I think it actually comes from an Alberta mm-hmm. uh, judge, and I uh, hopefully I get it right. Um, when the law becomes the uh, uh, sword rather than the shield, there's no justice. And I, uh, my experience watching it, seeing it, living it, um, I think sadly that's that's exactly what you're alluding to, not only in terms of the criminal justice system, but in the larger uh political uh system and i think that's that's essentially what's happened and i think that's probably one of the reasons why we're in a a semi-state of crisis in terms of this threat that we're trying to deal with and trying to figure a way to mitigate it and uh, one of the impediments is that uh sword that's supposed to be a shield for us now
1: yeah yeah
2: so, so um maybe we'll kind of wrap it up
0: there we're just over an hour just over uh so um, is there anything that we didn't really cover that you think we should have got to? Um, I kind of want to, I think we covered solutions as well. You got to that a bit earlier, which is usually. Oh, no, I, how end no, I up. think
1: we, no, we, we, uh, we, we so a fast gallop over heavy ground, but we, <laughs>
0: we did it pretty
1: well. Thank you. And thank you both for your, for your questions. You, you clearly put a lot of thought and research into this, so, which always makes it easier for somebody like me to mouth off and, and, and get asked <laughs> the right questions.
0: So thank you both. You Go ahead there, Calvin.
2: Well, Jonathan, I just want to say thanks. You, you did cover uh, huge territory in that quick uh, conversation. And uh, although I follow this topic uh, intimately uh, in terms of uh, reading and uh, discussions and networking, uh, I found uh, after years of following this topic, uh, the discussion we had uh, extremely insightful and informative. And I know you're super busy and really appreciate you taking the time talking to us uh, today.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So, John, just hang on the line for one second. I'm just going to stop the recording and we'll say bye
3: offline.